Back to another Meet Kevin Report. Today is episode number 40, the big old 4-0. Welcome back. It is March 3rd. Today we are getting some data that should give us a little bit of an indicator as to whether or not that January data was indeed an anomaly or are things really actually getting worse. We're going to be getting very important data. 7 a.m. we're going to get the ISM services numbers not only for employment, new orders, but also importantly, prices paid. Now previously, and we don't have a survey for these, but previously we had prices paid that came in at 67.8, well above 50, so expansionary. New orders were also expansionary at 60.4, and employment was even at about 50. And so what we're looking for is, hey, what would happen if prices paid stayed hot and orders came down? That would be the big risk factor. So we want to pay attention to what's happening with ISM numbers coming out at 7 a.m. this morning. It's in about two and a half hours from the recording of this video. A lot to talk about today. Uh, we've still got 10-year Treasury yields sitting above 10%, which uh, above 10%, good Lord, above 4%, excuse me. Uh, we were as high as 4.08% yesterday. However, this morning we have retraced somewhat back to about a 4.013 level. Let's see how the day evolves. Those 10-year Treasury yields are probably the most important to pay attention to, specifically because of its implications for the real estate sector, especially uh, when we see housing prices fall. We tend to see consumer spending collapse, and that's something we'll want to pay attention to very closely. But first, let's talk a little bit about uh, Tesla, uh, and then we'll talk about the Federal Reserve. We'll talk about uh, how this recession compares to 2001, and uh, well, whatever other topics we can talk about. Uh, first and foremost, I, I do want to remind you that uh, oil is a very big indicator that we also want to be paying attention to. One of the things that we're seeing with oil is this slow and steady downtrend. And we hope that continues, especially as it potentially affects energy prices in Europe. Uh, and the last thing we want to see is sort of this continued runaway inflation uh, in Europe, which is what we're tentatively seeing. Uh, that does create some risks for potentially exporting inflation to the United States as well. So far, we're not seeing that kind of pain uh, in uh, China, that sort of inflationary impetus. So we'll see. Uh, so uh, those, those are going to be the big things for today, especially, again, that 7 a.m. ISM data set. That'll be very important. We'll take a look at that. Uh, but for now, I think we've got to do a little bit of clarity on what's going on with Tesla. So let's catch up a little bit uh, on Tesla here briefly. All right, first things, we got to talk at Tesla. One of the reasons we have to talk Tesla on this is because almost every institution that attended the Tesla event has released their letter on what their takeaways are for Tesla. That is going to be quite interesting to break through. We're going to look at Barclays, Goldman Sachs, and what some of the other institutions are saying in their reports to their clients about the Tesla Investor Day event. Now, I love looking at what the institutions are saying because it's not clouded or shrouded in that sort of retail bull thesis. Generally, retail is extremely bullish on Tesla. It's probably the stock that is held by most retail investors, and it's one of the largest retail-held stocks outside of index funds like, let's say, the S&P 500, which, boy, there are potentially some big risks coming to the S&P 500. But 
With that said, I really wanna take a look at those institutional reports because the institutional mindset, in my opinion, is very, very important. Right now, we've got plenty of retail capital in Tesla, but when is that institutional capital actually going to flow back into Tesla? Is it going to be predicated on the market? Or would Investor Day have any kind of changing effect on what institutions believe for Tesla? We'll determine that in this video. Now, I'd like to also clarify because there are some folks who are making the argument that, oh, Kevin's being too short-term minded in terms of being frustrated about the Tesla Investor Day event. And I'd like to address that before we address what the institutions are saying. First, it's very important to know that the vast majority of people who are affected by Tesla stock are affected on a short-term basis. That means employees, employees being hired, employees just hired, employees who are considering working for Tesla in either the manufacturing era, in the uh, area, in the uh, uh, autonomous driving segment, in the AI segment, in the chips manufacturing or designing segment. Anyone who wants to work for Tesla or works for Tesla is immediately affected by a decline in the share price of Tesla stock. Therefore, it's really important for Tesla to do everything in their power to make sure short-term headwinds do not create too much of a downtrend for Tesla stock that then becomes self-fulfilling and shortable. Now, Elon Musk obviously and clearly violated this himself in 2022 with his $24 billion of stock sales that highly outpaced the $15 billion of retail net purchases. That's a problem and obviously led to Tesla's terrible drop to 100 bucks. Now, that may for long-term investors create a fantastic buy the dip opportunity, but what it can do is create a demoralizing environment for employees and individual investors who are affected by the short term. So it is in my opinion, very important that Tesla do whatever they can to organize their presentations in such a way that they're not actually misleading people. Now, don't get me wrong. We know in the world of a YouTube, YouTube's one of those places where the titles are often dramatic and then we've got to actually get through the content. Well, in the case of Tesla, they did exactly what people dislike on YouTube in person. They provided an investor day title, but what they really did was provide sort of a margin update and an update on how we're going to scale and at the same time reduce costs in the long term with a lack of detail on time frames. Those were a slap in the face to investors in the short term because without time frames, without an organized presentation, without exact information on, hey, here's how all of this coordinates together. It's kind of on the world to sort of pick up the pieces and go, okay, like that sounds good. That sounds good. Okay, how, how can we put this together? And how does this align with projections for timeframes or when are these actually going to get incorporated into future factories and gigafactories? What, what, what are the expectations we should actually start pricing in, right? Without that, you're not actually creating an investor day presentation. You're doing more of a, hey, by the way, here's how we're looking at innovating in the future, but we've really got little insights in terms of timing or timeframes for investors. And that's why I think Elon Musk himself said, this isn't for investors like shareholders, this is actually for investors in Earth, right? For that sustainable master plan three. 
Now that's fantastic for a long-term investor. Don't get me wrong, I find myself to be one of the largest long-term focused investors on the platform. Now, some people make fun of me for that and they say, oh really, you're the flip-flopper guy who sold stocks in 2022 and then rebought later. But the reality is anyone who looks back at that decision and questions, that decision is living under a rock. They are sticking their head in the sand like a dumb ostrich and is a complete idiot for suggesting that I should not have sold in early 2022 in January. And that's exactly what I did. And I never bought a single stock while suggesting that I would sell, right? That I always thought I was going to hold my stocks. It wasn't until I changed my opinion that I said, uh oh, I'm not buying anymore. I've got a big change coming. And within 12 hours of me selling my stocks, the entire world knew about that. That is, some people like to try to suggest that, oh, somehow Kevin, you know, didn't tell the world that, uh, that he was selling and he was telling people to buy while he was selling. That never happened. It's a complete lie. And that's what I think is so fantastic about YouTube because we can actually document all of that timing. And the beauty is that people who suggest I'm short-term focused miss exactly what I'm actually doing. That is, I'm so long-term focused, I run an active ETF that has almost a 30% allocation to Tesla. A substantial portion of my own personal portfolio is invested in Tesla. I don't care about the short-term fluctuations. I'm saying Tesla is making a mistake and I'm frustrated on the people who are affected by the short-term. Nobody could tell me that, oh, Kevin bought a jet because he's short-term focused. My jet, my plane, that I personally signed for is a down payment on what I believe will be a 10 to $50 billion company in the future. The jet is me risking my entire net worth and my livelihood today, where I could retire and never work again today for an uncertain future 10 to 15 years from now. I can't think of anybody more long-term focused than that. That's what long-term focus is. So in response to anybody who thinks, oh, Kevin's a frustrated, short-term minded retail investor, you're a complete moron. Because if you actually look at the actions that I take and you see what I describe, I don't, I, I, I would be hard pressed to find anybody more long-term focused than what I do. And yeah, I changed my mind, but that's because I changed my mind for what is going to create the best results in the future. And I think that's exactly what Tesla's actually doing here. Small micro flip-flops and adjustments now actually lead to exponentially better results in the future. Short-term minded individuals forget that. Small adjustments today expand to massive order of magnitude changes in the future. And I think that's what institutions are slowly starting to pick up on. And that's why we've got to look at exactly what the institutions are saying. And we'll go ahead and start with Morgan Stanley when it comes to Tesla. Take a look at this. So Morgan Stanley essentially in the short term maintains their price target of $220. Now, I personally think that's very interesting because Morgan Stanley suggests we seriously question how the competition can keep up with Tesla. Now, I completely agree with that, but I think it's very fascinating that what institutions are doing so far, and we've just started with institutions here, is they're making it clear that, okay, how is the competition going to keep up? but they're not actually making any kind of changes to their pricing targets. Now that's likely because the outline that we got at Investor Day didn't really connect those dots yet for most investors. 
And it's going to be a while before anybody, I think, can really model the changes that Tesla is talking about beyond what's already modeled. Most of Wall Street is already modeling this idea that, okay, 7 to 10 million vehicles by 2030, Tesla thinks tw uh, 20 million vehicles, we discount that somewhere between 50 to 60 to 70%, we get to 7 to uh, 10 million vehicles by 2030 at a 50% cost reduction, fantastic. We already get a Model 2, right? We know that. Whether the Model 2 is a newer, smaller vehicle for the Chinese market, or whether it's just a newly created Model 3 branded as a Model 2 that's made with essentially 50% uh, reduced cost. But, uh, so in other words, I do think it's very, very difficult because of the lack of sort of coordinated vision from Tesla's presentation for folks to realize that the small micro changes that are being made, the small adjustments. So for example, if, if we're on this trajectory for Tesla, or better yet, even make it sort of like if that's the trajectory for Tesla, right? I think it's very difficult for Wall Street to realize, oh, okay, Tesla just did that in terms of an adjustment, right? That was really what Investor Day was, was sort of that little adjustment, like that, by the way, is how we're revising going forward, right? And so, of course, in the short term, the market's like, okay, that's very difficult for us to understand. But the reality is, when you look in the long term, what happens is, if you stay on the trajectory, this might be your growth. If you continue with the micro adjustments, your growth might be like this. And then this is actually where the bulk of the value is created in the long term. It's when those small micro adjustments actually compound to being something extremely meaningful. It's, in, in my opinion, I see this very personally in, in my life. It's like starting my real estate startup, Hack, uh, starting an actively managed ETF, uh, uh, you know, buying a jet that enables me to do social media, manage an ETF, conduct uh, a deep high level uh, and, and deep dive research, so both high level and deep dive research and start what could be, a, in my opinion, knock on wood, no guarantees, a 10 to $50 billion company in the future, right? House high. Like those are the little micro adjustments that are happening right now. So I actually resonate a lot with Tesla and, and uh, the, the changes that they're making for the long term. And so in case it's not abundantly clear, what we heard was fantastic from a long-term point of view. In the short term, the inflections seemed so minor and because they were uncoordinated and because the, these long-term benefits were not properly explained, I think it was a slap in the face to investors and employees and potentially new employees in the short term. The vision of Tesla could have easily been coordinated without actually providing exact details. Nobody's saying, hey, you need to guarantee us, oh, the Model 2 was coming out, you know, January 1st, 2025. Nobody's suggesting that that is what Tesla needed to do, but coordinating the vision is what was missing from Investor Day. And that's why Investor Day really, in my opinion, was essentially clickbait. In the long term, fantastic. We could see the adjustments, but for investors in the short term, oopsies. But anyway, let's keep going here with what the institutions say. So Morgan Stanley suggests that Master Plan 3 entails immense levels of vertical integration. And this vertical integration will enable Tesla to iterate far faster and with less waste than other auto manufacturers. This is important. Minimizing that waste is critical, even to the point of, uh, and institutions are picking up on this as well, moving from a 12 to 48 volt architecture burns less, or I should say, wastes less energy, right? 
because it can operate more efficiently with potentially smaller cabling, you potentially have less heat that, ex that escapes from the internal architecture of the vehicle. And these benefits compound over time. They might seem minor in the short term, but they compound over time. That is actually an idea that Lucid has been integrating into their vehicle for a very, very long time. The idea that we should operate these vehicles at higher voltage voltages, so that way we could reduce amperages, basic electrical uh, uh, law. Anyway, uh, we believe customers, or rather consumers, will one day look back at electric vehicles from 2023 the way we look back at cell phones from the 1980s. Remember Gordon Gecko's phone when he was on the beach out east in the movie Wall Street? Tesla wants to be the largest manufacturer in the world by some margin. With that ambition, achieving cost leadership is deterministic. In other words, without achieving cost uh, uh, efficiency, you end up screwed. Well, that's obvious. And that's exactly what Tesla's doing for the long term. Again, they didn't pull that picture together for us, but that's okay. That's where I'm trying to also help pull the picture together. And I think that's what people in media do. That's why I actually think it's very important that we have the social media we have today, not mainstream media. I think we're all frustrated with most of mainstream media, but I think that's why we come to social media is to get the perspective that maybe isn't properly laid out by our government. Well, almost certainly not properly laid out, or in this case, Tesla. We would expect to see most, if not all of today's legacy auto company executive teams study the materials presented today and tour Giga Austin as they have toured Tesla Fremont facilities in the past. Innovations brought to market by Tesla become the industry standard and are ultimately used by all automakers, not unlike how Henry Ford was moving the assembly line. Now this is really interesting because you really have Morgan Stanley, again, maintaining their price target and keeping their view of Tesla in line. But at the same time, they're saying, oh my gosh, nobody is going to be able to compete with Tesla. So this is why we're making this video, right? To coordinate and, and sort of consolidate what is Wall Street taking away from this? It's also worth noting, by the way, that shipments from Giga Shanghai climbed to 74,402. That is 74,402 vehicles were delivered from Shanghai last month. That is up 13% from the prior month. It's down off some of the very high numbers we saw at the end of Q4 last year, uh, but, uh, but, but still finally returning to a larger trend as that main export facility for Tesla's. Suppliers on watch. I actually think this is one of the reasons you saw uh, uh, MP materials drop about 13% yesterday was this talk about removing rare earth materials from, uh, from Tesla's engines uh, was an immediate slap in the face to MP materials. And this is where it's, it's, in my opinion, quite ridiculous for people to say that the short-term stock movements or, or short-term uh, occurrences uh, don't matter to stocks. They absolutely do. I mean, look at this. You know what Tesla just did to MP materials? It's, it's not just that the stock fell 11, 10%, 10%, 11%. It's not just that. You know what Tesla just did to MP material? They sent a massive red flag to anyone working at MP material solely focused on rare earth minerals that your days may be limited. Doubt has just been cast on the jobs of anyone working on rare earths in uh, uh, magnet motors, which are basically electric motors, right? Electromagnet, right? Electro uh, electricity and magnetism are essentially the same force. 
It's kind of cool, actually. If you've ever broken, uh, taken apart uh, a, a motor, you'd know that. Uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating how, how similar they are. Uh, I mean, they're essentially the same force. It's, it's awesome. I mean, that's how generators work after all, right? Anywho, so uh, going back to Morgan Stanley over here. Morgan Stanley says, Tesla is on a mission to further reduce part count, mass, weight, and complexity while bringing more components in-house, smaller and less complex wire harnesses, fewer silicon carbide chips, and the elimination of rare earths in permanent magnet motors were a few examples provided during Investor Day. On the raw material side of the question, we still haven't seen too terribly much detail in terms of what Tesla exactly wants to do here. Uh, however, what we did see is 20 different executives across all operational disciplines. Now, Morgan Stanley says no teleprompters. In my opinion, that's actually incorrect. Uh, there were sort of preview screens in front of the presenters. And it was very obvious that at least one of the engineers was straight up reading from the computer screen in front of them. And look, that's fine. But let me just, from sort of a media point of view, say you could take all of the information from these executives, but you need someone else there to consolidate or to simplify what they're saying. For example, this is how you could make the presentation so much easier. You have one person talking about, let's say, full self-driving, right? And they go into the weeds of full self-driving, this, 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 this. And then you have somebody else. It could even be Musk himself. But anyone, somebody with a media mindset who comes out and says, now, those are the details. Here is the impact of what that means. What that means is we believe we are five years, at least five years ahead of the competition. We believe that because it's taken X number of hours to train our neural nets and X number of miles driven. This is where the competition is. This is where we are. Now, we also think we're X percent closer to achieving full self-driving for all vehicles without a driver even present to where within the next X number of years, we think we can release a vehicle with no steering wheel. Now, no guarantees yet, but we are, at, you know, 95% of the way there or whatever, right? I'm making up some of the numbers or leaving them as variables because that's for Tesla to do. But what they need is a translator, basically. And that's either going to be Tesla, or it's going to be potentially social media, right? But it's more difficult for it to be social media because we don't have all of the extra answers to create the impacts from that information. It's sort of like, here's the platter of information overload and nobody's really tying it together in terms of, okay, how does this actually stack up now? How, how close are we now to FSD, right? We, we don't know because we didn't have somebody consolidate that inf information. That's my frustration with Tesla. Don't get me wrong, the information is fantastic. What happened is fantastic. But by skimping out on somebody who can consolidate the message much the way that Apple does at an Apple presentation, well, you end up losing. And you hurt people and investors in the short term. That's why I think it's hilarious when people say, oh, Kevin's just a short-term mind investor. I, I don't even need to continue to defend that. Uh, it's, it's so ludicrous. Nobody risks their entire net worth for a startup if they're not a long-term minded individual. Nobody throws everything uh, and their reputation onto that startup or an actively managed ETF or, or, or you know, a publicly flip-flops and gets the world to hate them even though they're doing what ultimately was the right thing. Nobody does that if they have a short-term minded outlook, right? If I had a short-term minded outlook, I'd care more about subscribers and pleasing everybody. 
when the reality is what I do is I provide my real opinion, whether that's on politics or stocks. I'm going to keep doing that. Anyway, uh, let's see here. The non-avail of the Model 2. I mean, I... I didn't expect a Model 2 to get presented either. Neither did Barclays, neither did Morgan Stanley. There were a lot of people who did. Uh, there was the cannibalization argument that Barclays talked about, that they were not going to do this because it could potentially cannibalize sales in the future. That's fine. Uh, this, this is not that big of a deal. It would have been nice, though, to have sort of a wrap of, okay, got it. So Gen 3, 50% less cost. How about, like, at least some kind of guide? Like, are we looking at end of the decade? The beginning of the 2030s? Are we looking at, you know, 2027? Like, how about, I mean, this could have, in my opinion, been as simple as this. You could have one single slideshow, uh, a little, and, and this is this is going to be my estimate, by the way, right? So it's this is going to be my, my speculation here. But I think you could have had uh, one slide that would have said something like this. Here's our roadmap. We think uh, uh, semi-truck uh, full scale by 2025. Cybertruck uh, full scale. Uh, let's put that actually right here, and we'll call this by, let's say, 2024. Uh, Cybertruck first delivery, 2023. And then what you could say something like this is Mexico Giga 2024 uh, complete, right? And then you go over here and you say Mexico Giga uh, would be, uh, let's say, uh, ramping 2025. Uh, Mexico Giga... Uh, potentially releases first, you know, next gen vehicle, Q4 2025, Mexico Giga ramps next gen vehicle 2026, uh, you know, uh, first, first Optimus, Optimus robots on a floor by, let's say, 2027, right? Like this, this kind of roadmap is something that would not have been very difficult for Tesla to give, in my opinion. Unfortunately, that wasn't given. Uh, and again, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like we, we could we could say, look, we, we can't guarantee this result, but at least some sort of vision of how does this all stack together? How does the Mexico Gigafactory fit in to the plan? You know, we heard it was announced, but we don't know how it fits into the plan. Now we think we know, we think that batteries are going to manufacture, get manufactured at Giga Texas and then potentially go to vehicles assembled in the Mexico Gigafactory at a lower cost, maybe with Optimus robots and at the same time cheaper Mexican labor. And when you combine that, you get the recipe for potentially a Model 2 with the parallel processing that we learned about rather than serial processing. That's, by the way, is a very important word. So I, I, if you're a Tesla investor, you really have to know this. So uh, a, a parallel processing is basically taking the car and moving it from station to station to station, right? That's what cars do now. The, uh, oh, sorry, this is this is a series, in series processing, my, my mistake. That's in series processing. In parallel processing is you're taking different components of the vehicle uh, and you're manufacturing on the, you're essentially putting these together at the same time. So if this direction here represents time, then rather than the product moving through time, the product at the same time is manufactured, you know, in, in just separate parts. So the parts, right, essentially the idea here is that now you can have robots work on different parts of the vehicle at the same time. You assemble it like Legos and you cut the time down substantially that's required for manufacturing these, right? Now, unfortunately, uh, it, it doesn't seem like that 
Tesla Optimus robot is particularly close, especially since it, it, what individuals have posted online is a close-up of the robot hand here. And we do see that uh, the Optimus, you know, grabs something here. But what's quite odd is when you look at this closely, it actually looks like this, uh, this hose here. Uh, it's, a, it's a hose sleeve for what looks like maybe, you know, I don't know, 14, 16 gauge wiring. You can see that gauged wiring right here. It's very small. I mean, this is like sort of the typical wiring that you might see uh, for, for uh, you know, up to a 120 volt circuit or something like that, uh, but could be even smaller. But anyway, it's covered by this hose right here. Uh, and uh, it looks like this is some sort of uh, actuator here or, or servo, so to speak. And uh, the idea here is that the Tesla Optimus can already unplug this. And it's sort of a way of maybe unembarrassing the Optimus presentation. The, the last time we had sort of the Optimus event where, you know, it, it, it was still impressive to see, oh, okay, real world vision is coming to robots. We know, like this is fantastic, but it's still, it still, it wasn't the best presentation, right? And so this video is sort of an attempt to uh, maybe fix that by showing us a robot that, that appears to be able to walk and, and position its hand where this rope is, or this hose is. The problem is this hose begins to move well below, uh, well before the Optimus actually makes contact with the hose, which actually implies that there's an, in, an individual off camera to the left over here who's actually pulling the hose out of the actuator for the robot. Uh, and this is really more clickbait here from Tesla. Ready for this? Watch very slowly. See, look at that. That cable pulls out before. See, look at right here, right here. There's no contact made by the hands yet, right? The hands are not really, I mean, we, we can't tell that this is actually being contacted yet. Yeah, look right right here. Okay, there we go. How, how does this actually start pulling back? We don't know. Now some, now maybe, Maybe we're just getting a bad angle here, but why does it look as though somebody else is potentially pulling it? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe that fingertip is a lot thicker than we think it is, or there's a larger piece of metal at sort of the inside of the hand here, inside of the finger, that is actually lifting this. But there's some rumor that this is actually a person who's pulled this plug out, uh, because the plug actually seems to pull out well before the hand does anything. Look at that now on this side. So I've been had, I've had your attention here. Now I want your attention to go to this plug over here. Pay attention to the plug. Watch the plug come out before. Because I, I see your comments. Some of you saying, oh, it lifts it up. Okay, yeah, maybe. Maybe the metal's thick right here. Uh, or, or maybe it's possible, right? But now I want you to tell me if this plug coming out is possible. So pay attention now to this plug. Okay, ready for this? Watch the plug come out before the hand moves to the left. And plug, plug's coming right here. Plug comes out right here. Is it possible that the plug comes out because the finger puts so much pressure on the hose that the plug starts coming out? Yes, it's possible. But it looks like the plug is just floating out of there before the hand actually really pulls, right? And the other thing, now part three, is watch this motion where the hose gets yoinked almost before the hand pulls back. Okay, look at this. In this frame that you're about to see, yoink. It's, it's almost as if it's happening before the hand is actually appropriately moving back. Now we're not sure. 
maybe it is possible. It is possible that there's a lot of tension on this piece right here. And if there's a lot of tension on this piece uh, and on the hose, maybe it comes flinging out when there's enough pressure put on this by the fingers to pull it out of the socket. Maybe, maybe. But then again, then again, we do know that there has been a reputation of Tesla to kind of show things that aren't really working yet just for the excitement factor. Now in the future, it will work, so it's fine. It's not a big deal. But again, what would have been nice would have been a little bit more vision around the idea of, hey, look, you know, this is where we've gotten to now with the Optimus. We think the Optimus is going to be on the floor of a factory doing stuff like this, or at least in beta, as soon as 2024, right? Like, you don't need to give us guarantees. You don't have to give us absolute exacts, but put the puzzle together for people. That's what's missing, and that's because Tesla's not investing in a media person or a media department really here, right? It's sort of just like, here, we'll put it all on the plate and we'll sort of let social media or the mainstream media run rampant. Anyway, let's keep going here with uh, some of the uh, investor information. So we did learn that the uh, the powertrain might go down to about $1,000 cost per vehicle. Electric architecture, uh, this is where they talk about a 16x reduction in lost power by moving potentially from a 12-volt architecture to 48-volt architecture. It's important to know that when they say here reducing current uh, factor by 4x, that does not actually mean really anything. The only thing that matters is the potential lack of waste. Because if you increase the voltage, you will increase the, uh, uh, if you increase the voltage, you will decrease the amperage. But the wattage is the same. The power used is the same. The only thing you save is potentially having a more efficient wiring system that releases less heat. So potentially that's where you save the energy. But from a formulaic point of view, just because you increase the voltage does not make the system more efficient. It's just in potentially the fact that there's less heat. That's important. Think about actually why Europe uses the 240 volt architecture. It's not like when you go plug in a microwave in Europe, it's using more power than American uh, 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 microwaves. It's using the same wattage. A thousand watt microwave over there is the same as a thousand watt microwave over here. That's important to remember. The difference though is if you have more efficient wiring, you could potentially use uh, thinner wires because they don't need to be as overheat rated. And that's how you could potentially make building and construction more efficient by having the entire property constructed out of a 240 volt wiring system. It also means you have 240 volt plugs everywhere. So if you want to plug in a washing machine uh, or an electric dryer or a stove, you don't have to run a different set of cabling for that like you do here in America. Now, it's not to be confused with people who take an American hairdryer that's designed for a 120 uh, a volt system and plug it into a 240 volt system with a, a, a converter in Europe. Yeah, that thing's gonna glow and look like it's using a whole lot more power. That's because it's drawing twice as much power as it's designed for, <laughs> okay? But again, the efficiency here is, is, is really not in the formulaic change. Uh, it's potentially in that the wiring would, uh, would would lead to a reduction in sort of wasted energy. Okay, that's fine. Again, Lucid's been doing that. 
Robot was able to provide uh, perform menial tasks as originally intended. That's fine. We, we saw that and we just commented on this. I did like the estimate that there would be potentially more than one humanoid for every human at the factory. I did think that was actually fantastic, and I really enjoyed that uh, that that sort of forecast. So I'm going to go through just some some more of the the main parts of Wall Street here. Megapack can connect to any grid globally. It's the most energy dense solution on the market at upwards of 300 megawatts per acre, uh, megawatt hours. Megapack is 2x more energy dense than a traditional power plant. Fantastic. Should Tesla be able to hit the cost targets outlaid today? When coupled with OPEX discipline, we find it hard to see a way in which legacy automakers can compete with Tesla in terms of EV profitability. That right here is a fantastic line. Morgan Stanley is saying we find it hard to find a way for it, for legacies to compete with Tesla. We already know that. Ford is not expected to be profitable until 2026, and they're already miserably failing. GM is probably also not profitable. Uh, and, and we're not even talking about profitable. We're talking about wildly unprofitable, right? It's kind of like Rivian when we looked at the Rivian numbers. They are spending on a net basis $300,000 to make an $82,000 car as of their Q4 earnings. On a gross basis, they are spending $200,000 per vehicle to make an $82,000 car. It's incredible. Okay, but anyway, uh, so they are maintaining their price target of $220 for 2023. Pretty low. No no changes here on price target from Morgan Stanley. Uh, we've got Bank of America suggesting that the presentation was a little light on details. They're also maintaining their $225 uh, target. Uh, it's worth noting that, again, when they talk about being light on details, they're really talking about uh, combining the vision. Where, like the dates that I talked about, I think are actually realistic, the dates that I gave. But Tesla should be the one putting that vision out. So that way we know what are they working towards? I can guess all day long, but what are they working towards? It's kind of like when Elon Musk poo-pooed the idea of the copy and paste, that's fine. But that's the first time we've seen him poo-poo that idea. Okay, fine, don't copy and paste. Make every gigafactory different, fine. Then maybe that aligns with the idea that maybe the Mexico gigafactory is for the Model 2. Maybe there's another gigafactory that's for the Optimus robot, right? And that the gigafactories are just basically tuned to different purposes. Maybe that's why Elon Musk seemed to kind of shake his head at that idea. That's fine. But again, a media person could combine all those details. That's why it's a middle finger for short-term purposes. Long-term, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think, I would venture to say there's nobody more bullish uh, on, on, on YouTube, at least, uh, uh, than, than me. So uh, Sandy Monroe, uh, now what's interesting is he's extremely bullish, but at least when I had my last interview with him, and I'm going to talk to him this April about that, uh, likely when we meet together, is he was was an argue he was he was pro not investing in uh, Tesla stock uh, during the time of my interview, which maybe ended up being a good thing. I don't think that anyone could have predicted that Elon Musk was going to dump as much as he did for Twitter, but uh, but it'll be interesting to sort of get his updated perspective on that. So uh, um, Sandy Monroe said something very interesting, though. He says, uh, uh, he says, and, and this is why I want to ask him. Uh, he says he's putting his money, not booting his money. Uh, he says, I'm putting my money on uh, Tesla's Model 2, the $25,000 vehicle, basically being like the Model T and the Beetle. Not an expensive luxury car, but a mass-produced style of car that everybody can afford. That was the idea of the Model T. That was the idea of the Volkswagen Beetle. 
that everybody could afford it. And, and Sandy thinks that's, uh, that's likely to be essentially the Model 2. And we're not clear if that'll be a smaller vehicle. But anyway, uh, the Bank of America maintaining their 225. Let's jump into Barclays. Do we have Barclays? Uh, let's go to Goldman Sachs first. So here's Goldman Sachs. The bottom line is we believe the event the event should increase investor confidence in Tesla's ability to reduce costs by 50% with its next-gen platform. However, we believe many investors were hoping for more specifics on when a third-gen vehicle could begin shipping, and therefore the lack of clarity beyond the comment that they're working as fast as they can could be viewed as a disappointment to some. I agree. That's exactly the problem. Again, the content, fantastic. The summary, bad. Now, unfortunately, their 12-month price target here is $200, so they actually see more near-term downside. Now, I think that's kind of remarkable uh, because they actually think, and this blows my mind, they actually think that Tesla is going to grow EPS negatively in 2023, uh, this year. They think Tesla's EPS will be negative in 2023. Okay. All right, whatever. Uh, and, then, and then go back to maybe 50 to 20% growth in the next few years. Uh, so, you know, somebody here, Nightcall says, I don't think they want to put out a date because it's never met and it hurts investors. I disagree with that highly. I actually think it's very important to put out a date because it actually creates the pressure to achieve close to that date, right? If you come out and say, let me put it this way, okay? Think about it this way. Everybody does this. Everybody on a human level can do this. Oh, I'm going to start working out and I'm going to get buff or whatever, or I'm going to exercise more. And we tell ourselves that. Yet when do we actually do it? We generally don't, right? Most of us don't. And it's just the way it is. Or we go once in a while. Oh, we're going to eat better, right? Well, if we actually set a goal, I will have lost X weight by X date. Well, now you measure your performance towards that date. And even if you miss it, you're more likely to have performed substantially better leading up to that date than if you didn't actually set a goal date. Setting a goal date and communicating a goal date now actually unifies Tesla's staff at, all right, might be ambitious, but let's try to make it happen. When you just do, ah, we're doing our best, you take the pressure off. You should never take the pressure off. It's like my goals with House Hack. My goal with House Hack is to, and again, no guarantees, is to IPO an extremely profitable company that could be, in my opinion, worth billions of dollars in the future before the end of the decade. Before. I, I, I don't want to get into the 2030s without it having IPO. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a market crash in 2029 and it's not going to make sense. I have no idea what's going to happen, right? But I'm setting goals. And, and so I think it's important to set goals and then hold yourself accountable to those. If you miss, that's okay. Then just provide a new update. What changed? How are we doing in an adjusted time frame? I think setting time frames is actually extremely important. And this this idea that oh well, you know, they always miss their time frames, so let's just stop doing time frames is a, a ludicrous example uh, or a ludicrous suggestion for for goal setting. I mean, that basically says don't set goals because you miss all your goals anyway. You know, don't don't try to strive and achieve something because you're going to fail anyway. That's a defeatist point of view. That's the worst way to look at it. Time frames are very, very, very important. Uh, goal setting, very, 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 very important. 
you know, Sen McGuire here says Tesla and time frames and, and, and says uh, clown, clown, clown. That's fine. You, you can argue all you want that Tesla clowns with its time frames, but setting time frames and goals is extremely important. Anyway, Goldman Sachs gives a little bit of a summary of some of the things that we saw, you know, where we're going to see reductions in fossil fuel use, the big one getting the grid to renewables, the next big one EVs. I actually thought it was very interesting that moving planes and boats to EV would actually only lead to about a 5% reduction in fossil fuels, showing you that most of the reduction in fossil fuels comes from moving the grid to renewables and then moving EVs to renewables. I thought that was re really interesting because like I would love to use less jet fuel. It, like, first of all, it's expensive. Uh, and, and you know, from a, from a, um, like, a, from, from a, a, the point of view of uh, efficiency, I mean, it's fast, but it burns a lot of fuel. You know how much fuel a Boeing 747 burns? So when, when people ask, hey, how many miles to the gallon does a Boeing 747 get? You actually have to flip it around. It's actually about I believe when I last looked, I have to get fact checked. It, it's it's two to five, but I'm gonna go with five because I think that's what it is. It's about five gallons per mile for a Boeing 747 to fly around. That's crazy. Se five gallons per mile for a jo Boeing 747 to fly around, right? Very, very, so so I initially thought like, wow, okay, I thought like freight and, and, and planes would, would actually be a, a great place for efficiency, but probably because there are so many more cars and so many more grids, that's actually not uh, the, the way to look at it. Now, fortunately, I see what I, and I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back, but I purposefully wanted to get a smaller plane to be as efficient as possible. I could have spent more money and had a plane that's larger, sit more people, but I don't need more people in it. Uh, my fuel burn on my plane is about 165 gallons uh, per hour. And that works out to roughly about 3.5 miles per gallon. Uh, so not great. It's pretty low. But then again, you're going 565 miles per hour, roughly at, at max speed. There's some takeoff considerations there and it changes some of the averages a little bit. Uh, but but a, a larger plane uh, that we were also considering last year, especially, would have gotten about one mile per gallon. Uh, uh, yeah, what would have gotten about one mile per gallon. So we're like, yeah, let's try to be, we get it. Let's try to be as efficient as possible. But anyway, I, I just mentioned that because I think it's interesting. I don't think people generally think about like how many miles per gallon planes actually get. Uh, and, uh, and, and then at the same time, I thought it was very interesting how uh, moving uh, planes and boats to sustainability, full sustainability would only lead to a 5% reduction in fossil fuels. I thought that was interesting. I, I get it. Like on a per vehicle basis, it's not as great. But from from uh, from an overall uh, energy uh, sustainability standard, it's probably the last place to get innovative uh, because it has the least impact. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, here we talk about balancing the serial line approach versus the parallel approach, how that could potentially lead to 40%, 44% better operator density and 30% better space time efficiency. Uh, some other efficiencies here. We didn't really get any kind of autonomy targets. Talked a little bit about charging and wanting to build more. Talked about software, mega packs. Uh, we talked about implications. Here we go, Goldman Sachs. Bottom line is we believe this event should increase investor confidence in Tesla's ability to reduce cost by 50% with its next-gen platform, given the breadth and depth of Tesla's team and how its vertically integrated model allows it to optimize on both cost and performance. However, we believe many investors were hoping for more specifics on when a third generation vehicle could be shipping. And therefore, the lack of clarity beyond the comment that they're working as fast as they could uh, be in the next couple of years is likely to be viewed as a disappointment by some. 
We believe a couple of years would imply the 2025 timeframe, and we continue to believe later in 2025 would be more probable. Probable. I, I actually agree with about a 2026 for a Model 2 timeframe. I think that's very interesting. So let's see. Uh, somebody here writes MPG is for older people. <laughs> okay. Uh, looking back, can you explain why, why selling in January 22 was the right thing when you had to pay taxes and gains since buying back uh, has a temp, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so uh, first of all, the absolutely the best decision I could have made because I allocated my portfolio uh, from a large exposure to money losing companies to highly pricing power centric companies. Uh, that, in my opinion, have such high free cash flow that even in a recession, we are going to be able to avoid real valuation compression. Now, things will be volatile, but I would have lost way more money had I not sold in January of 2022 and told everybody about that transparently. I mean, twice as much. It, it would have been it would have been extremely painful. Now, again, I'm not saying it was perfect, but I did my best to get away from money losing companies. And that was the absolutely the right decision. Now, when you talk about taxes, and I made this clear for me, my tax situation is different than other people. I had the opportunity to buy a plane for $13 million, which eradicated all of my capital gains from selling real estate, income, and stocks. Thank you, tax system. <laughs> and specifically Donald Trump, who in 2017, through the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, expanded the accelerated depreciation to 100% for planes. Yeah, so anyway. Okay, uh, then we've got one more over here. So we've got Barclays. It's a fair question. Uh, let's see here. Uh, 2022 saved you from losing so much money on those small companies. Yeah, small companies got wrecked. I mean, there's some companies that went down, you know, 90, 95%. And these are companies that I warned, hey, like you don't wanna hold these suckers in a recession. Now, some people get mad at me. They're like, you, you, you said that was a good stock. I'm like, yeah, unless we go into a recessionary environment. That was like, was pretty clear about that, but that's okay. People want to have somebody to blame and that's fine. So Tesla Investor Day, Master Plan 3, leveraging Tesla DNA to achieve mass scale. So I, I don't want to read every part of the Barclays one here. So we're just going to go to some of the highlights. Tesla looking at a balance of parallel and serial production. We talked about that. Uh, I thought this was interesting. They talk about demonstrating bench strength by, by showing all of these these 13 uh, additional people who generally don't show up on uh, on earnings calls. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. And we expect the Mexico plant to use battery cells produced in Austin to make sure they achieve a full tax credits uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, this was also interesting. They talk about potential upside on deliveries. They talk about the idea that uh, Tesla actually produced 277,000 approximately units through Q1 2023 so far. And that's about two thirds of their, 20, uh, their Q1 estimate of 423 vehicles. And that suggests a modest ahead of estimate scale, although we are kind of like two thirds through the season. So, but anyway, they say that's because of the production impacts from the Chinese New Year and the slowdown in January could actually mean they'll end up beating production estimates for Q1. Good to know. That's a little bullish on Q1 earnings right there. Uh, limited color provided on financials was disappointing for some. Optimistic tone about uh, uh, about uh, raw materials. Yeah, and I think that's really a big big argument there is that Tesla's not terribly worried about uh, uh, you know this uh, 
this the the future of availability of, of lithium and, and otherwise thinks uh, they'll end up uh, they'll end up being just fine essentially on the commodities factor. So I think that's quite fascinating uh, and quite useful. So I think that gives us sort of a a deep dive clarification and summary from not only institutions but also from me on Tesla. I could not be more bullish on Tesla. I've shown my price targets for Tesla plenty of times. I'm looking at well over $500 in that $500 to $600 range. You could say $525 to keep it simple. For 2025, I think it's a phenomenal investment uh, going forward. Obviously, that's not personalized financial advice. I am a licensed financial advisor. I run an actively managed ETF. I, you know, I, I, I have a real estate startup. I do a lot of crazy things uh, that you know look crazy now, but I think we're going to be awesome in the long term. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan, so I, I, I want to make that as clear as possible. So anywho, let's move on. So someone here is asking, how influential do you think the elections will be on markets in the fourth quarter? Of 2024? Um, I mean, I, I never really think elections are terribly much of a concern. And I, I think they, they usually are made out to be much more of a big deal than, than they tend to be for the stock market. It's a broader economic direction that seems to matter a lot more. Uh, macro directions, right? So, I mean, look, for example, at uh, oil or inflation or, or what's happening with, with bonds. I think these things are much more important than, than actually elections. Uh, it's, it seems like macro pushes through no matter what happens with elections regularly. So generally, I don't pay too much attention. I mean, I pay a lot of attention to politics, don't get me wrong. And that's actually what we're going to talk about next. But I'm generally not too terribly concerned. Like, I'm not going to not invest for fear of what happens at a future election, you know. Don't really care about that. Tesla poker face on raw materials. Yeah, that could be. That could be. Planes are the least efficient mode of transportation. Uh, potentially. It's probably probably not untrue. Uh, it, but then when you factor in time, uh, they become substantially more efficient. But then again, you got to make something float, right? <laughs> All right. Okay, okay, okay. Next. Oh, this will be entertaining. Oh yeah, this should be really entertaining. All right, let's talk about this next topic. We got quite a few topics to cover. That Tesla segment took a little bit longer than I expected. We gotta talk about Top G Andrew Tate. Is what's happening with Top G seriously concerning or is Top G getting ready to play the system because he realizes his case is weakening? Uh-oh. That's a not very popular thing to say. So I'm going to start out by saying this. In preparation for my comments here on Andrew Tate, I've actually watched a lot of Andrew Tate uh, content, and I'm going to just remove for a moment any commentary on women uh, because I think that's actually very important to do. And now I'm going to just focus solely my opinion on what Andrew Tate does in terms of uh, motivation for entrepreneurs or uh, business owners or people who want to create their own business, people who want to uh, feel sort of a boost to, to feel energized to do something, uh, uh, you know, really meaningful in their lives. From that point of view, I actually think the content that Andrew Tate provides is, is quite good. Uh, separated, again, from any commentary on women. And I highly have a separation for that, okay? Very, very big separation. Big gap, big gap. So I want to separate that, okay? But in terms of like entrepreneurial motivation, Fantastic. I have to say, there, there are some very fantastic uh, uh, points and arguments, and, and uh, I, I think they're wonderful. I think they resonate. Now, 
Obviously, we know that Andrew Tate right now just had his uh, uh, jail stay extended another 30 days. Unfortunately uh, for uh, the Tate brothers, who both had their, uh, uh, you know, uh, jail sentence extended while they wait for charges to be filed. Now, I think that is probably the most frustrating part for Andrew Tate's attorneys and also Andrew Tate supporters, because while he sits in jail, the world doesn't actually know what the charges are. We know that there are allegations potentially of money laundering, uh, potentially uh, allegations of uh, rape or sex trafficking. Who knows, okay? The actual charges haven't been filed yet. However, a Romanian judge continues to sort of kick that can down the road in 30-day increments. Some people allege the reason for that is because Andrew Tate was a little too brazen in suggesting, oh, I pay off the police here, they'll never arrest me. And this is sort of maybe a way to sort of use Andrew Tate, who's obviously a popular social media personality, as, as sort of a, a lesson. Like, you think you can mess with the Romanian police? We'll show you. We'll keep you locked up without charges and just continue to extend you on 30-day bases. Well, unfortunately, now there's talk about Andrew Tate having, yes, the C word, cancer. Take a look at this. Here's a tweet suggesting that there is uh, a medical update of possible cancer from Andrew Tate. Now, other folks, some folks have suggested that this has already been confirmed by people close to Andrew Tate via random and miscellaneous Instagram posts saying things like, yes, it is unfortunately true, Andrew Tate has cancer. And uh, here's an individual who, uh, if we hover over here, says they are an investigative journalist, PhD candidate, okay, so, so student, uh, blogger and teacher. Anyway, okay, so uh, they, they say here that uh, the CAT scan report is extremely alarming. Andrew Tate may have lung cancer, urgent biopsy needed. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm covering that up a little bit. Let me move myself to a different corner here so you could see this a little bit more easily. There we go. We'll go back to the, the bottom right. There we go. Put Kevin back in the bottom. All right. CT report is extremely alarming. Andrew Tate may have lung cancer. Urgent biopsy is needed, and a six-month delay could be fatal. There are reports he's lost 10 kilograms, so what, about 22 pounds of weight, which is also a sign of cancer. Cancer could be incurable now, says, uh, says the piece here. Now, if we actually look at uh, the piece that was released, this looks like it is a King's Hospital uh, of London report, but it actually shows a Dubai address, United Arab Emirates, King's College Hospital, Dubai.com, to whom it may concern, and this is apparently from January, but it's just now coming out. Andrew Tate, his date of birth. Dear sir or madam, I'm writing you this letter in my capacity as Mr. Tate's primary care physician. Okay, so this is not a specialist, right? Uh, this is primary care. This is your general doctor. And that's not offense to PCPs. Uh, and that's not to be confused with the drug either. Uh, this is no offense to general care physicians. It's just important to know that, okay, so wait a minute. So, so Andrew Tate, who's a U.S. and London citizen and has his operations in Romania, has a primary care physician in Dubai. I personally would like to know how long Andrew Tate has had his PCP in Dubai. It doesn't really make sense that your primary care physician would be in Dubai. But, but okay, we'll keep going here. I am a consultant in family medicine and medical doctor 
of King's College Hospital, London, in Dubai. So I want to be clear about that. London Hospital in Dubai. Okay, fine. Keep going. Andrew is currently being in, and that's important, by the way. I'm, I'm putting on a little bit of tinfoil hat here for a reason, and that is not to sort of impute a bias. I am wanting to provide you why certain people are saying something that they believe. My goal is just to provide what I'm seeing in a sort of summarized way. Andrew is currently being investigated for a lesion in his upper right lung at King's College Hospital in Dubai. Okay, so he's being investigated for a lesion by at, at his primary care physician's facility. Okay, in Dubai, even though he's not in Dubai. Okay, he has recently undergone a contrast-enhanced CT scan, the report of which I attach. Okay, so, so maybe he did go to Dubai and have a CT scan. That's entirely possible. Where there were some concerning features of the lesion that require urgent investigation and tissue diagnosis. Okay, uh, and, and so in other words, this report was potentially... Uh, potentially occurred just days before his arrest. Andrew Tate arrest. Let's see when his arrest was. I, I, I want to say that was just days before that, uh, that he was, uh, that he was arrested. Ah, uh, no. Okay. December 29th was actually the date of the arrest. So about two weeks before his case was discussed by our multidisciplinary team meeting, and he has been scheduled to have a number of further urgent investigations and procedures uh, including essentially more scans and, and tissue sampling, biopsies. Uh, it, although it does appear that those were delayed, despite being urgent, between December 12th and 29th when, when he was arrested. Now, it's possible that they delayed that because of, you know, the holidays, right? But if it was super, if it was this urgent, I feel like if, if something was that urgent, why, why, why would we not want to conduct a surgery within, within the week, right? And this letter is written... On January 2nd, so three weeks later, okay, after the arrest, all right. His case was discussed, uh, further scans. It is my professional medical recommendation that Andrew is urgently repatriated to the UAE to undergo these medical investigations without delay. Time is of the essence, and any further delay in the above investigations may have a serious negative implication for Andrew's physical health. Please do not hesitate to contact me if you require further assistance. Now, I think it's very interesting that rather than suggesting, hey, let's send Andrew Tate to medical facilities in Germany, fantastic cancer uh, facilities, or the United States, fantastic cancer facilities. No, let's send him to Dubai, which is also where CZ from Binance resides because there are no extradition treaties. That's where people go to live to get away from taxes and the law. It's also interesting that this document from January 2nd wasn't released until two months later on March 2nd. And why that's interesting is because potentially it gave Andrew Tate enough time. Let's go over here to, I'm trying to get to my liked tweets, uh, profile area. Uh, it gave Andrew Tate enough time to potentially lose weight to align with the media release because now you have somebody who who has has lost potentially 20 kilos to suggest, see, it must be real. He's lost weight. It must be true he has cancer because he's losing weight. Right. Because there's no other reason somebody could lose weight other than cancer. Now, I'm purposely putting that jade out there because what are people saying? And this is not my opinion. It's just what people are saying. And I, I like these just to sort of provide sort of an outline here. What people are saying is that Andrew Tate all of a sudden looks really unhealthy and unwell. Therefore, 
and, and, and since he was previously investigated for cancer, he must have cancer. That's essentially the conclusion that's being aligned, and therefore the argument is being made, hey, let's send him to Dubai, where there happens to be no extradition treaty. So on one side, you have people going, obviously, he's being poisoned. The Romanian government, they're criminals. Andrew Tate is being, is being destroyed by the Matrix. Uh, we need to get Andrew Tate out of jail right away, or at least tell us what he's being charged for. And in fairness, like, we kind of, I think the world would like to see the evidence, right? On the other hand, you have some people saying, oh, well, this is what happens when you run out of uh, steroids for a while. Well, usually the effect of anabolic steroid withdrawal wears away after about two weeks. That's not me saying it. Uh, that's uh, that's sort of some basic research that you could do online uh, that, uh, that'll tell you exactly that. So generally, the, the effect of uh, anabolic steroid withdrawal, if he was even using any, goes away after a couple weeks. So I, I don't know that this so much matters. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, these are the, the sort of ideas that you're getting is that, oh, lost weight, uh, uh, you know, maybe he has cancer. Oh, that, that's it. He needs to be extradited. Again, on one side, you have people saying this is just a ploy to get out of detention and flee the country to basically an area that has no extradition treaty. Other people saying this is very concerning. He needs an urgent biopsy. Uh, his lymph loads are maybe clear on radiology, but biopsy may show something worse that could metastasize. Uh, Again, in my opinion, if it was so urgent, wh why wasn't it done between December 12th and December, you know, 28th? Who knows? Anyway, uh, this is very interesting. This is sort of the latest news on uh, the Tate case here. Although there's actually a little bit more. Let me go to Mario really quick. Mario gave a little bit more uh, color as well. So over here, Mario shows some CCT footage. Uh, of uh, what looks like women leaving and returning to their home uh, to, to Tate's house on their own. Uh, basically, what they're trying to show is it doesn't look like anybody's leaving under you know duress or kind of stress or under under like the force of. Uh, uh, it's not like they're running away screaming, "Help me!" or whatever. I think this is sort of just a way of of trying to exemplify. See, they weren't fearful. Otherwise, why would they come back? Okay, I mean that's an argument. Uh, you know, there, there are ways to make people come back uh, with, with money, or, or maybe there really are no problems, right? And I think this is why everybody wants to see the allegations. So many on social media complained that women were trapped, and an armed guard stopped them from exiting the house. And so in other words, they're releasing this CCTV footage to say like, no, they're, they're fine. Uh, okay, so uh, then there's also, Mario also had another argument uh, just the other day, I'm pretty sure. So we saw that. A lot of war. Okay, here we go. So what do we have here? This is uh, really talking a little bit more about uh, the cancer case. This is the physician report that we just read. Andrew Tate was taken to a hospital a short period after being arrested for developing a lung nodule. This seems to indicate that his condition was known by Romanian authorities. So here's a January 8th report. That's actually a little more than a week afterward. Anyway, Andrew Tate reportedly taken to hospital for medical issue two days before court hearing. Ah, okay, before court hearing, okay. So then we have, uh, there have been reports that due to the conditions in Romanian prisons, Andrew Tate's health has been has deteriorated. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it would suck to be in any jail, especially Romanian jail. So I completely agree with that. A sign of cancer is also weight loss. Yes, yes, this is true but you could lose weight for many reasons. But anyway, uh, what do we have over here? A CT scan seems uh, seems the possibility of lung cancer. So you know, I, I don't know what video footage this is uh, here, but um, 
you know, so you get some images here. I think this might just be a Mayo Clinic piece on what lung cancer looks like. This is not necessarily directly related to Andrew Tate. I don't believe it is. Uh, Andrew Health, uh, and then here's somebody saying that Andrew Tate is in poor health due to a pre-existing condition. I want to stop there. My client doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, let's see, this is a translation. Uh, nor does he want to use it in his defense, nor has such a theory been argued in lawyer pleadings. Uh, have the Romanian court ignored this, or is it simply a mistake by Andrew Tate's lawyers? Uh, this is a response by, by his previous attorney. Uh, here's his newer attorney. Uh, and this is where she essentially talks about, hey, like, hey, you know, he needs to be charged. We need, like, a formal charge. And I agree. Like, it'd be nice to actually have a formal charge uh, of, uh, of what's actually going on uh, in, in terms of uh, why, why his uh, detention continues to be extended. So, again, two arguments here. One argument is Andrew Tate is getting ruined by uh, the the Matrix and the Romanian prison system is basically killing him and preventing him from getting access to medical care at the same time as the Romanian political system and really potentially the world elite make an example out of a person who talks against the elite. That's one argument. The other argument is Andrew Tate was in Romania because he is a criminal and he thought he could get away from the law now the law is finally catching up with him, and he has done things terribly wrong, and uh, he potentially is using this sort of Dubai doctor as a tool to get him to the United Arab Emirates, where there's no extradition treaty. So once again, he can play the system and make sure that he's able to continue escaping from the law uh, the way he has previously done. Okay, so, so those are both sides. Now, ultimately, it comes down to what you think, and I think the reality is, I don't know that any of us can really know with certainty which it is until we actually, A, see what the charges and the evidence are, and then B, find out maybe from, from other parties what the true state of Andrew Tate's health is, right? So I think it's way too early to actually determine, uh, you know, uh, what, what the real conclusion is. TBD. TBD. Uh, men need to listen to Jordan P. Someone here writes, Masculine Mindset. This is like the perfect channel name to say what you wrote here. Men need to listen to Jordan Peterson, Kevin Samuels, Andrew Tate, and meet Kevin, and all garbage politics will crumble. It's interesting. It's an interesting uh, point. I mean, I, I, I don't know who the, uh, the, the Samuel person is. Uh, but I certainly appreciate the association with uh, Peterson. I, mean, I think he's, he's a brilliant mind. It gets a lot of backlash, though, in the media. And that's not as a way to say that, oh, you should listen to him less. I think he says some phenomenal things. I mean, as with anyone, you shouldn't blindly listen to everything someone says, right? Like, I don't recommend you blindly follow everything I say or do. I think you come here for perspective that's unique, that you don't get anywhere else. And, and then you can make your own conclusion. That, that's why I think Kevin exists. Kevin exists to provide perspective that maybe you can't get anywhere else. Good. Next up, we must talk about the 2001 recession and how it compares to today. Uh, all right. George is a good guy. I smell a rat. The fact that the doctor was a consultant and from the UAE should tell you everything. 
it's a little sus. <laughs> it's a little sus. Oh yeah, so um, before I start the 2001 recession thing, let me explain the straw really quick. Uh, so sometimes people get mad at me and they tell me I'm gonna have cancer for drinking coffee through a straw. So generally you don't want plastics to be heated up because yes, they can release carcinogens. That's just what happens when plastics heat up. You you break uh, uh, those, those chemicals down uh, and then you make them capable of floating around in a solution, which then if you ingest can go into your liver. Just ask the people of East Palestine in Ohio. Might be too soon for that. Anyway, um, so what I do is I actually uh, really like coffee out of like porcelain that's hot. So I'm gonna call this a coffee rant really quick. Uh, it's gonna be a brief coffee rant, but there's a reason for this. Coffee rant. Okay, no, 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 no paper straw. Rubber, glass, much better. Paper straws, complete trash, complete trash. But uh, usually I like sipping coffee out of porcelain that's hot when it's fresh, but this coffee has been sitting here for an over an hour, for over an hour and it's ice cold. So the reason I drink ice cold coffee through a straw is because I drink so much coffee that when it's cold, I may as well try to limit the staining that the coffee does to my teeth because that's what coffee does. It, it, it stains the crap out of your teeth. Uh, so um, the straw prevents that because you're really dodging, you know, it from hitting your teeth. That's the point. That's the point of the straw. But again, so if you see me ever drinking coffee out of a, a straw, it's because it's already damn cold and it's nasty. And it's just like, I'm drinking it not because I like it, I drink it because it's a utility. It's also black coffee. Uh, so it's basically how I get my primary form of hydration is black coffee throughout the day. I have like six cups of coffee a day, which then people are like, coffee dehydrates you. Good Lord. Yes, coffee makes you go to the bathroom more, but it does actually still hydrate you. Anywho. Mmm. Good old nasty black coffee. Uh, but anyway, uh, my favorite straw, by the way, would be a glass straw. So if I could choose a glass straw, I'll choose a glass straw. But I have to say, it's uncanny how matchy-matchy I am today with this prayer potion, uh, the straw that basically matches the prayer potion, the blue, uh, the blue around, I, I don't know, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, here, Scott wants to give you the technical phrases. It's a diuretic, not a... Des, des, desiccant, desiccant. Yeah, whatever. I think what he's saying in English is it makes you go pee. It doesn't dehydrate you. <laughs> in English. <laughs> I, I had dreams of being a doctor. I also had dreams of being a pilot. I promptly flip-flopped on both of those. <laughs> I will never be a doctor. I will never be a pilot. <laughs> Just, it ain't me, man. I can't do it. It, it ain't me. <laughs> okay, Scott confirms my translation. Thank you. I appreciate you for being here and confirming that. Uh, these and exercise facts are why I really come to the Meet Kevin Report. Yes. Yes, have you seen these guns? <laughs> Good lord. 
All right, we need to talk about... <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. We need to talk about uh, recession. Oh, jeez, Lord. Now we got to talk about similarities between the 2001 recession and today and the uncanny warning that the 2001 recession gives to us today and why you should probably pay per hand a very specific part of your portfolio. Though, even though I am a licensed financial advisor, run an ETF, sell programs on building your wealth link down below, and run what I hope in the future will be a tens of multi-billion dollar real estate startup, hashtag no guarantees, I cannot provide you personalized financial advice telling you to sell what you're about to hear a massive warning on. But what we're going to do is we're going to jump into BC Alpha's research on the recency bias and comparison to the 2021 cycle. I'll tell you, this is a very, very unique report. And so we're going to go through this report uh, and, uh, and then we'll summarize it. So ready for this? Here we go. All right. So first, the market has disappointed both bulls and bears. And the reason the market has disappointed both bulls and bears in the opinion of BC Alpha is because the market's kind of trading sideways. Like we're not making new lows, so the bulls are disappointed and we're not rallying anymore. Or sorry, so the bears are disappointed. We're not rallying anymore, so the bulls are disappointed. Yeah, the market, so the market has disappointed both groups. And the S&P 500 has been in a trading range since basically May of 2020. 22. Now that's actually kind of remarkable to think that the S&P 500 has essentially been in a trading range, a range since uh, since March or I'm sorry May of 2022. Let's go ahead and zoom out and look at May of 2022 on the screen here. This is Weeble, and if we go to May of 2022, uh, that is kind of eerie. Uh, so if you go ahead and jump over here and just draw a couple uh, uh, trend lines over here, let's draw. Uh, let's just get a parallel trend line over here. Uh, okay, we'll just grab this over here. So we go over to May. Here's essentially your top in May. And we'll just draw something that's mostly flat. I should have just grabbed the horizontal line, but whatever. Uh, and let's do it again over here. We go to roughly about our bottom in June. Oh, yeah, I mean, we're well, well off of that, right? But I think this is roughly what they're trying to suggest, that this is the trading range that we're in. Very well. Okay. What warnings do they have for us? We believe that many investors suffer from recency bias, and they're using 2008 to 2021 as a guide for their equity outlook. The bulls assume that any considerable drawdown would be followed by a large rally, as this is exactly what's happened since 2009. This is basically the buy-the-dip mentality that has worked extremely well since 2009. Bears, however, presume that poor fundamentals should produce a crash in share prices just like they did during the Great Recession. However, this report suggests that the market's trajectory this time will likely be different. Instead of a one-off collapse in share prices like in 2008, the S&P 500 will probably be in an extended bear market for the first time in 20 years. In fact, the S&P 500's pattern and trajectory have so, closely, so far closely resembled the behavior of equities in 2000 and early 2001. First, the U.S. bull market peak of 2000 occurred after a decade-long exponential rally in technology, media, and telecom stocks, TMT. The same is true for the 2021 stock apex. Here you go. Here is that chart on the right side. You can see this drastic peak in TMT market value as a percentage 
of uh, sort of the total market value, the MSCI total equity market value, basically the entire market. Uh, and then on the right side, you see that similarity. Interestingly, at the zenith of the bubble in 2000, TMT stocks accounted for about 40% of total market cap. The same was true last year. Okay, over here, historically, massive retail investor buying occurs prior to major market tops that are then followed by large bear markets. And the latest retail frenzy occurred in 2019 and 2020. This is very similar to what happened in the 2000s recession and then the subsequent 2000s crash. And they talk about this decoupling between new, new and old economy stocks temporarily during the initial 2000 to 2002 bear market as it became clear that the U.S. economy was in a major downturn. Basically, everything ended up rotating down. And they believe that today we see a lot of those similarities. In other words, non-TMT technology, media, telecom stocks, uh, and TMT stocks first decoupling, and then basically everything crashing. So let me make that clear in English. They're basically saying in the dot-com crash, first you saw TMT stocks fall, and then everything fell. And they think that's the same thing that's actually happening this time, is first you've seen a crash in a lot of SaaS companies and tech companies, and the next leg down is basically the S&P 500, because the same thing that happened in the dot-com crash is going to happen now, that the SPY is preparing for a massive leg lower, and this is a very large warning. They make another correlation and say that there was a correlation between stocks and bonds, and basically, usually what you find is that in early January until October 2000, the S&P 500 exhibited a negative relationship with 10-year Treasury yields. In other words, stocks up, yields down. And that negative correlation was still exists today, but is weaker in 2000 than it is today. And that's probably because we have a substantial set of inflation today. However, what ended up happening was in the first phase of the market, you had a negative correlation. Let me just say this in English to simplify this, okay? So basically, the first phase of the crash in the dot-com era yields up stocks down. In the second phase, you actually had yields up, stocks up. And that was seen, or yields down, stocks down. So you had a correlation. Positive correlation means they're going in the same direction. Yields up, stocks up. Yields down, stocks down. That's positive, right? Negative is the opposite. And what they're saying is, at first, we had a negative correlation, and then we went to a positive correlation as the crash worsened. Well, guess what's happening today, folks? We were negatively correlated. Yields up, stocks plummeted. Now, we're turning positive. Yields up, stocks up. That is actually what they're saying, a massive red flag, and potentially a sign of a massive crash to come. They also talk about how profits often lead employment. They talk about this idea of basically employment being a lagging indicator. Look, we've known that employment was a lagging indicator forever. I've regularly talked about it even as early as January of 2022. And it was actually one of my reasons for selling that the conditions of a wage price spiral existed in January of 2022. They don't exist today. That's good. But it takes a while for all of that information to show up in data. Anyway, uh, so 
that's how they see similarities. So they see massive similarities in the correlation of bonds in the peak of TMT and uh, in employment. They see very, very similar, large similarities to 2001. And they think we shouldn't be focused on a 2008 style crash. We should actually be looking at an S&P 500 bear market, just like in the 2001 crash. So big warning. Now they do give us some differences. They say that even though there are massive similarities to 2001, obviously today, the genie of inflation is out of the bottle. And it might be very, very difficult to put the genie of inflation back in the bottle. Uh, and so they make some arguments here that we've had this massive rise in productivity uh, during, uh, during the dot-com era, but today we actually have a massive plummet in productivity. Now, some of that could be explained away by uh, you know, the changes of the pandemic leading to sort of this misallocation of resources and a lack of, pri uh, of, of um, productivity. However, the employment cost index today has basically looked much more wage price spirally than what we had in the dot-com era. Now, let me just explain. The left side of this chart is 2001, the right side is today. I wrote the words higher triangle. Let me explain that in English. <laughs> well, first, that means higher delta. And in English, that means stuff is going much faster today than it did back in 01. In other words, stuff getting worse today faster than it did back then. We are accelerating faster today than it was back then, right? Higher delta, higher rate of change, the derivative is higher, whatever. Same thing for labor costs. Although it does look like the employment cost index has peaked, now we're waiting for labor costs to peak, and the leading indicators are that they are. But these are actually differences that don't make today more bullish. They actually say what this report is trying to say is, look, the similarities are bad news for the S&P 500. The stuff that's actually different today is just more bad news for the S&P 500. Okay? So here's the bottom line. The cause of the bear market of 2000 to 2002 was a large drop in corporate profits. The same will probably be true in coming months. So when we talk about a harder soft landing, our bias is that the economic recession in the US will likely be a mild one. However, the market will experience a large drop. Look at the confidence they have in this. I don't know if they're just like a frustrated bear but they're really confident that even a small decline in GDP will lead to a massive compression in the S&P 500. During the 2001 recession, real GDP barely contracted and household spending was actually positive. Interestingly, the measure of real private demand then was almost as weak as it is today. Even though you barely had contraction, you ended up seeing a massive collapse in prices because earnings per share were down about 60%. And so they say, in a nutshell, the S&P 500 dropped 50% in 2000 to 2001, even though nominal GDP never contracted. That basically means the recession was so shallow, it took even like 1% or 2% inflation to make it negative, right? The latter will likely suffer considerably more than the former. And so what does that mean? corporate profits are likely going to substantially suffer. And we're going to see a massive margin squeeze at S&P 500 companies. In other words, companies are going to take it in the margin. And the problem here is that if consumers accept higher prices so that companies can protect their margins, 
Well, then inflation goes up and stocks go down. If companies push back against higher prices so inflation goes down, then stocks go down because earnings go down. And so even though they think bond yields are going to fall, roll over and bond yields will come down, which will be good for the real estate market, they think that S&P 500 companies operating EPS will contract by 21% from a year ago and the S&P 500 risks a 50% decline. And so this equity bear market will likely be drawn out much like the 2000 to 2002 period. And in short, despite the healthy balance of consumer balance sheets and a robust banking system, you are going to see a profit margin squeeze that will destroy S&P 500 companies by about 50%. And we're facing a major sell-off ahead of us in global stocks and another spike in trade-weighted U.S. dollar. Basically, the emerging market outperformance still has another leg down. That's basically what they're saying. So what says Kevin? Kevin says, this is exactly why I think the S&P 500 is a bad investment. Hashtag, hashtag not personalized financial advice. It's also exactly why I think pricing power PP stocks are a very good investment right now. I think that pricing power stocks, companies that actually have the ability to maintain the strongest margins and even in the face of price cuts can expand revenue and continue to show EPS growth. I believe these stocks will perform the best. This is why I think personally investing in the S&P 500 is a bad idea right now. And I think focusing on pricing power stocks is the best idea because they've sold off the most and in my opinion have the most resilience in the face of this uh, basically margin crush, the taking it in the margin that we're expecting here. This piece, in my opinion, is basically, and this, this just came out a couple days ago here, uh, is, is really just a, a selling piece for the idea that get out of the S&P 500, find yourself some pricing power stocks. Uh, and, and like, I think maybe they're being a little bit more bearish than they need to be because I personally think, still think we're in a Nike swoosh style recovery. But, uh, so I'm not as bearish as these folks, but you know, if we're going to look at the S&P 500, which is heavily weighted to yes, some technology, but also substantially staples. Yeah, I think staples are gonna take it in the margin. Hardcore. Retail, staples, restaurants, hotels, they're all going to take it in the margin. So yeah, I'd be very, very concerned uh, for that. And I completely agree. This is the kind of stuff we also talk about in the course member live streams. When we do our fundamental analyses, we look for large PPs. Like we want to find large pricing power stocks. That's very, very important. My take, see what you think. Leave a comment down below. Next up. All righty. Now we must talk about the Federal Reserve. Da, 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 da. Yes. Yes. We have to look at the Fed. Because we have an update from the Fed. And there's actually a second piece that I want to use with it. But let me make sure I have it handy. Hold on. Uh, oh, right. Right, 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 right. All right. Okay. So next up, we've got to talk a little bit about Europe and the Fed uh, and uh, where there's some overlap and how not to fight inflation. So we're going to do a little bit of chatty chat chat on exactly that. All right, here we go. 
The Federal Reserve has just released some more concerning opinions about what the heck is happening and has happened over the last few weeks. These concerning opinions are ones that we're going to evaluate against, uh-oh, what is the data actually saying? Is January's data really that bad? And why is the Federal Reserve all of a sudden getting a little squeamish? Well, let's take a look at the press release from the Federal Reserve outlining exactly their latest thoughts. Now, what's important here is to know that this press release, hot off the press, from uh, Christopher Waller, uh, who is obviously a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, was released in text uh, instead of via a Zoom call because apparently somebody got on the Federal Reserve Zoom call and started showing porn. And after that was displayed, the Federal Reserve said that Waller's event has been canceled due to technical difficulties. So anyway, uh, you know, I guess they were trying to analyze, you know, PP and pricing power, you know. But anyway, um, so we have it in the written form. So last month, we received a barrage of data that has challenged my view in January. <gasps> Mr. Waller, his view in January has been challenged. In January, his view was that we were making significant pro progress in moderating economic activity and reducing inflation. I'm not the only one whose outlook has shifted. Since the end of January, financial market participants have revised their outlooks in a way that led them to mark up their expectations for the federal funds rate at the end of 2023 by about half a percentage point. Okay, so that's that 5.1% terminal rate that we got. The data started to shift with a bang in February. And part of our plan is to lower inflation by reducing tightness in the labor market. But unfortunately, the labor reports, like the JOLTS report, which can be noisy, that's actually important to see because them saying these reports in January are noisy is somewhat of a way to kind of downplay the January numbers. But anyway, even though there's a noisy data that comes out in January, we have to be careful not to downplay large moves. And the jobs numbers that we got in, in February for January were scary. And instead of getting a box of chocolates on Valentine's Day, yes, Chris Waller literally said that, we ended up getting CPI reports that were high, suggesting that inflation was running hotter than we thought at the second half of last year, a PCE report a few weeks later that came in hot, and retail sales and spending data that suggested progress on reducing demand may have stalled. This is all bad news from the Fed here. Like, bears are going to eat this up. The last thing you want is the Federal Reserve going, progress is starting to stall. That's bad. Any fear that we might face a two-sided risk in achieving our dual mandate was blown away by the January numbers, says Chris Wallers. Waller. What does that mean? Well, what it means is the Federal Reserve has frequently been told, hey, if you go too far, you'll unnecessarily, unnecessarily create a deep, dark recession. And what Chris Waller here is saying is, any fear that we're going too far got blown away by the January numbers. So in other words, we can keep going without that two-sided risk. Wages are growing faster than they have in decades at a pace that may contribute to inflation continuing to be elevated. We've seen excess pressure in the fast growth of services pricing. And the fight to inf bring inflation down to our 2% target will be slower and longer than many had expected even just a month or two ago. That's bearish. That suggests rates higher for longer. 
I mean, we kind of already know that. The terminal Fed funds rate right now being priced in is like 5.42%. Uh, you're not pricing in any cuts anymore. Not only are you not pricing in any cuts anymore for 2023, but it looks like you're probably not looking at cuts until 2024. That's the higher for longer, right? Great, fantastic. What else? I don't want to brush aside the fact that we have made progress in reducing inflation and there are indications of further improvement coming. The three-month inflation rate is running below the 12-month rate, which highlights progress. And there are reasons to be optimistic about continued improvement, including a sharp deceleration in rents expected uh, uh, coming in the next few months here. However, if consumer spending isn't slowing and labor markets are unsustainably hot, then progress could have stalled. So there are two scenarios the Fed is saying. Either progress stalled or the January data was just a blip. Seasonal adjustments, a blip, something that's going to go away, and we're going to end up seeing the resumption of a decline in inflation going forward. And ultimately, we hope that the February data shows that we're just facing a bump in the road, but that might end up being wishful thinking. We might have to go higher for longer because we can't risk a revival in inflation. That's the Federal Reserve's latest take as of yesterday, which again, that latest take was delayed a little bit because somebody showed porn on the Federal Reserve's live stream. So what says the market? Well, the market has some opinions on this. And uh, the market actually responds with, uh, well, at least this one company responds with this and suggests, hey, is the January data really as good as it looks? In other words, is it really as hot as it looks? And what they say is that if we look at all of the data on a four-month annualized basis, so basically you take four months between September and January, and then you annualize it, which means you multiply it by three. It's not exponents. Don't use exponents, damn it. Annualized means multiplied. I have that fight all the time. Uh, anyway, the measurement shows that there's still solid growth, though it's nowhere near the growth that you saw in January. So here's a piece that suggests maybe you don't need to be as worried. Look, for example, here, when you look at the, uh, uh, the uh, January data alone, the month over month data suggests really, really bad data, because if you annualize this, you're sitting at 10 to 12% on some of the data or even more, right? So the January data was very, very bad. But if you look at the September to January data on an annualized basis, retail sales, yeah, up 5.6% and real personal consumption expenditures, which is inflation adjusted are only up two and a half percent. This is actually much more normalized and in line and actually falling from the 2.8% for real PCE that we saw in 2022 as a whole. And they say here as a conclusion, we're not trying to suggest that January's data was bad by any means. It was very strong. However, we are more skeptical that the economy has seen a substantial renewed acceleration that will be sustained moving forward. So in other words, here's an, in here's an institution that says, I don't know. It's likely that the January data was probably just a blip, and maybe we don't have to be as worried about that January data. Now, we did get data on March 1st that suggested potentially stagflation, right? We got manufacturing data that suggested less orders and higher prices, which that's not fantastic. That's not what we want to see. And so there are real concerns that, oh no, the inflationary impetus could continue. And that's actually where, why might the inflationary impetus continue? Well, potentially because of exported inflation from Europe. See, inflation in the Eurozone itself is not cooling, right? We've seen a substantial increase in inflation and a very, very tight labor market uh, with a risk of a wage price spiral in Europe, which if you have a wage price spiral in Europe, 
you're probably going to export more wage inflation to America. Uh, and that's bad as potentially, and this sounds crazy, but you hire American workers who potentially are more available to do certain jobs or prices rise for European goods and services, which leads to more uh, inflation broadly for the, for the world really. But you know what else is leading to high inflation in Europe? Well, quite frankly, it's the strikes that are happening in Europe. It's not just Germany uh, facing labor strikes, but it's also labor strikes and protests in uh, France that are leading to strikes. Uh, you've, you've got massive, uh, you know, here's sort of a history of some of unions and the strikes that you see in France. Uh, but really what you're finding is walkouts of rail unions. You're finding, uh, strikes amongst, uh, uh, German, uh, uh, airport staff. You're actually seeing, in my opinion, so much contention between labor unions, not just in Europe or France, but also in the United Kingdom that you're inducing so much more inflation in Europe via wage inflation and supply interruptions, you're actually making the situations worse. Think about it. If you strike and you create supply disruptions, you increase the cost of providing supply, whether that's for goods or services. If you increase the cost of providing supply, you're reducing profit margins at businesses more, which actually means businesses have less capacity to pay higher wages in the first place. So in a weird way, the crazy strikes that are happening in Germany, in France, or London are actually making inflation worse for Europe. Now, fortunately, we have less of that issue in America, but you still have a Federal Reserve that's saying, I don't know, man, if that January data doesn't turn out to be a blip, rates are going to go up even higher. And while some folks say, eh, you know, it'll probably end up being a blip, there are plenty of reasons to say that maybe what's going on in Europe can end up starting to affect what's happening here. And we do end up with a revisitation of more inflation, which would obviously be very, very bad. And this is why we have to write down the very important catalyst. March 10th CPI, uh, sorry, March 10th uh, labor report, 5.30 a.m. March 14th CPI report, 5.30 a.m. I'll be covering those specific standard time. And then of course, March 22nd, when the Federal Reserve reams us at 11 a.m. Pacific. We'll pay close attention to those. But really, you've got a Fed right now that's like, eh, let's see what the next data sets are. You've got leading indicators in America that are saying they shouldn't be bad. Jobs availability is substantially expanding. Uber, Lyft, Chipotle, I don't want to go through the list again. I feel like I could do it every single day. But wage availability, labor availability is substantially expanding. You still have some shoots of potential pain in Europe a lot of that potentially being caused by striking in Europe right now, and some of that could end up exporting to America, which would be bad. But we do expect substantial wage and rent disinflation to really help us anchor inflation down, and hopefully we'll see yields plummet, which will save the real estate market from more certain pain. We'll see. Right now it seems like some things are slowing down, though yields tend to be very, very volatile. So we'll pay attention to this, but this gives you an example of what the Federal Reserve is thinking and how uh, labor strikes in Europe could also affect inflation. We'll see. In my opinion, bottom line, all of this is very consistent with a Nike swoosh recovery. It's very volatile. This is the kind of noise you would expect, but the, the direction is very, very clear, in my opinion. And that's why I'm a big fan of 90 to potentially 100% in, not more because you don't really want to be on margin, 90 to 100% in, not personalized financial advice, 90 to 100% in on pricing power stocks. Stay away from the collapse, potentially from staples and the S&P exposure, focus on pricing power stocks. 
Mighty. Alrighty. So, we have a course member live stream coming up where we're going to do the market open. We'll look at some data with course members together. We'll do some analysis together. Uh, aren't uh, strikes an indicator for no wage price spiral? I mean, I see what you're saying. You're trying to argue that, you know, if there was a wage price spiral, then, then people wouldn't have to strike because wages are going up. The problem is wages are going up. So you are seeing conditions of a wage price spiral. But uh, labor unions are demanding more of an increase because inflation has been so high. So it's a little bit more blurry uh, and, and, and less clear. Anyway, somebody else says here, I'm keeping 30 to 40% in cash for potential real estate deals. It's actually not a bad idea. I think you've got uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, optimism for, um, uh, for real estate opportunities going forward. So we'll see. I really think Q2, Q3, you're going to see a surge of inventory. That, that's probably where buy time begins. How much more cost do you think companies are yet to pass on to consumers? Relatively limited. Uh, I do think aerospace will continue to, to drive costs up. I think uh, pet stores have a little more to pass on. Uh, certain services have a little bit more to pass on. Uh, some, some staples have a little bit more to pass on, but not, not much else. Somebody here is asking me the thoughts on Bostic saying the word pause. Let me see. Uh, I will let you know in just a moment. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's not really that much news. Okay. All right. Okay. 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 So a little append. Uh, one sec. Now, some folks were asking me, hey, what about Mr. Bostick suggesting, hey, maybe we get pause at the Fed? Of course. Of course he's saying that, but he's also very, very clearly saying, look, it's all going to be based on the data. All Bostick is doing is saying, look, if the data is great. Maybe we're closer to being able to pause. Maybe January was just a blip. If the data comes in bad, no pause yet. Of course, at some point, the Fed is going to pause. I don't think that's really the big catalyst. I think when, when the Fed pauses, we're already going to have clear and convincing evidence that inflation is not running away anymore. Like, the pause will be too late for real euphoria, I think. I think the inflation data will provide the euphoria, uh, and then the Fed will just follow that. All right, there you go. Thank you so much for joining another Meet Kevin Report. Really appreciate you. I'm going to make another cup of coffee and I'll be in the course member live stream within the next five to 10 minutes here. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much again for being here. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.